chapter 2. invite you, if you don't have a Bible, please take one of the black Bibles in the back or in front of the, one of the chairs in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one and put your name in it and make it your own. Use it. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2. When you came in, on the very back, there's a place for sermon notes and it, it gives you the outline or the table of contents of my sermon. And so I, I hope that's helpful to you. And I also encourage you to take the, the Bible reading plan that you got last week. And if you don't have one, it looks like this or up on the screen. There should be a picture. Mary, if you want, it looks like there's one in the, there's on one of the tables there to help you read through the book of Hebrews a couple times this month. I think it will help you and help me. It will help us all as we Engage in God's Word in the book of Hebrews. Okay. The life of the God is not a straight, smooth ride from conversion of being saved to, to happy, glorious bliss. And it's just, it's just straight downhill joy. Um, as the quote that I shared last week it's, it's more like, not like a, a straight shot interstate of Nebraska. It's more like a winding road in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Tennessee or the Rocky Mountain Ranges where there are rock slides and precipices. There's bears. There's slippery curves and hairpins. You got to go backwards to go forward. That's how the Christian life often is. The book of Hebrews says you need to be really careful on this road, it's glorious. And there, in fact, it's going to say, and someone went ahead of you, clearing the path and preparing the way, and he bids you come, and in fact, he's with you, but be careful. And Hebrews stands as a warning and says, there's dangers everywhere. There is the dangers of, and I shared five of them last week. There is the danger of drifting away to other saviors or other things rather than your great salvation. And, and be very careful. You could fall away in unbelief and, and be, be careful of doubting God and be careful of not growing and remaining stagnant in your experiential faith in God. And be careful of not taking sin seriously and ignoring the discipline and correction of the Lord. Because if those dangers could send you to hell. Not because you lose your salvation, but because, brothers, you who profess Christ, the proof of whether your salvation is real, that faith that began, is that it's going to, you're going to persevere to the end and be saved. And, and this is how the author of Hebrews says it. We are God's house. We the church. We brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is that head of that house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence, our boasting in our hope. That's Hebrews 3.6 or Hebrews 3.14. We have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Or Hebrews 6.11 and 12. We desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope till the end 
so that you would not be sluggish or lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. His point is, it is those who through faith in God inherit the promises. And lastly, Hebrews 10, 36. You brothers have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is what promised to you. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. By the way, he's quoting Habakkuk too. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no, dis, no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, fall off the cliff of this journey but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Hebrews is a stark warning. It's an exhortation. It says, do not fall off that cliff, but look to Jesus. Consider Jesus. You don't lose your salvation, but if your salvation is real, in the midst of all these testings and trials, your faith will continue Because I am there, I'm going to help you. And the way I'm going to help you is you look to Jesus. So I give you, encourage you to spend the rest of this month reading these passages and praying and thinking and lean in seeking Christ as we gather together on Sundays to to dive a little deeper or in different directions. This morning's on chapter two. So I said, I gave you these dangers last week and we spent five, we've spent the sermon talking about these five dangers. And at the end, I said, look to Jesus. Now, I want us to keep in mind, and I think the author to Hebrews, God, wants us to keep in mind dangers of drifting. You could drift. You could fall into unbelief, and you could fall into just a stagnant, no growing. And and sin just takes over your life, and you just fail the warning of the warnings, and you ignore the discipline of the Lord, and you're in trouble. He's concerned about that. But that's not where he wants our attention. You remember the first time you drove, or were starting to drive? Man, I remember, I was so scared as a a timid 15 and a half year old getting into driver's ed, and I just remember seeing this get on a a two-lane highway, and we're going 55, and there's another car coming right at me. And then it goes right past me. That's scary. I mean, they could hit me. The reality is, it could happen. And a head-on would more than hurt. It's dangerous. Well, I remember being taught, don't fixate on that oncoming danger, that car. Don't fixate on that. Look up ahead. And zone on the road, focus on the road, but look ahead, don't fixate, be careful, stay in your lane. The message I want us to hear this morning, or the challenge, or or the practice I want us to challenge is, let us not fixate on the danger. Today, let's fix our minds, let's fixate, let's consecrate, let's obsess ourselves with something else that God would intend for us to do that that Jesus has sent us on and he will bring us home and the best things. If we have the fear of being afraid, 
let us fixate on he is the anchor. If we have a reason to fear unbelief, which we do, he is trustworthy and he's going to keep us trustworthy. So let's look to the trustworthy one. If we have to be really careful lest we just stop growing and are immature all the rest of our lives, which is a danger and proves that we are not real, well, he's the source of life and growth and I'm going to get to, I want to abide in the vine, Jesus. And if I have to be aware, and you and I have to be aware of sin that could creep into our lives, leading to unbelief and unfaith, lack of faith, well, I need to look to him who is my helper against my greatest sin problem. And if there is a danger to ignore discipline, well, his disciplines are only for my love and I can trust Him, and I want to cling to the loving arms of my Father through Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want us to fixate. In the midst of these dangers, this danger called the Christian life, that the enemy is, if you are saved, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, Satan wants to destroy your faith. The world is out to distract you and cause you to drift away from God. Your flesh will fight against growing. So this morning, I want to focus our minds on chapter 2 and fixate our attention on Jesus and specifically, why Christmas? Because that's what chapter 2 talks about. Why Christmas? Why? What I mean Christmas is, why did Jesus the Son of God become man. I want to I want to introduce to you a word you've heard before, probably, but you probably would struggle with. Well, some of you would struggle with defining it. It's called incarnation. Christmas is about the incarnation. Would you say that word with me? Incarnation. Okay, good. You know that word. So, incarnation means the word became flesh. John chapter 1, the Word, that's, that's the Word that from the beginning created the world, the Word that He made the world and sustains the word by, world by the Word of His power, the Word is God. God, and we say it like this in the Trinity, Trinitarian terms, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Word, which is God the Son, became, in a point in time in history, about 2,000 years ago, maybe B.C. 2 or 3, God became flesh. When we say flesh, He doesn't mean just physical body, which it was. He took on a full human nature. Our, he took on a human will and a human emotions and a human... All these things that are part of our humanity, and we're going to see in Hebrews 2 talks about that, and intends for us, to, by understanding why he did this, why Christmas, we would look to Jesus, and we would treasure all the, more what God has, all these dangers, fixating on what God in Christ has done for us in Christmas. So here's four reasons from chapter 4. Chapter 2, that I hope will cause our minds and hearts to fixate on Jesus on this road. I pray that God 
would cause our hearts to grow to, to live in light of this because it's our identity, it's our destiny, it's our cleansing, it's, it's, it's so much. It's everything. I can't, I can't say, give enough superlatives about it. So here it is. Before we see those four, I just want you to see how chapter 2 shows us the importance of Jesus becoming man, incarnation. Look with me, verse 9 of chapter 2. I'm going to read from 9 to the end of the chapter. But we see him. You could say, who's that pronoun talking about? Jesus. He's just comparing Jesus to the angels. We see Jesus, who is a little made for a little while, was made lower than the angels. That's the incarnation. He was, he was above the angels, and then he became flesh, so he was lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. There's the incarnation. Jesus, spirits, Jesus, God, was a, God is a spirit. But he became flesh. If he's a spirit, he can't die. But he suffered death and became a man. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should, be made, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. See the incarnation? He suffers. He, became, he, he came and the very God who in, makes the world exist was made perfect through suffering. He was made complete. His, his, his being this high priest, this instrument that God was going to use to save the world. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who sanctified are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. Since therefore, here's the incarnation again, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things. What's the same things? Flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, which, which are humans, not angels. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. There's the incarnation again. He had to become like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here are four reasons for Christmas. Four reasons why Jesus became man, why the incarnation, why word became flesh, or as you could use it in verse 10's words, and the way verse 10 talks about it, here are four reasons why it was fitting for Jesus to become human. See that? For it was fitting that he, number one, 
Jesus became man. Christmas is here in order to make us part of God's family. Look at verse 10. It was fitting that he from whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. That, that's, that phrase is so important. Look at that. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that he, in order to bring them to glory, God would make the founder of our salvation or the pioneer, the NIV says, the one that goes before us, perfect through suffering. The idea of through suffering meaning by becoming a man. It includes the cross, but it includes he became a man and he suffered a human suffering for us. Why? In, to bring many sons to glory. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater privilege and greater truth to us as Christians, nothing more practical more important for us to mine the, de- mine the depths of the mountain, of the gold mine of, of truth about our lives, then the, the fact that God becomes our Father, we become His sons, and Jesus is our brother, and we're adopted into God's family. This passage says Jesus came to bring many sons to glory. Now, Bear with me here. You say, well, I'm a, I'm a lady. I'm a woman. I'm not a, I can't be a son. Well, in this case, in the biblical sense, you become a son. And the, and the son were heirs. They're recipients of the promises. And so, so in this case, when he says sons, he means men and women become sons, meaning they become inheritors. They, they receive all the rights in the biblical times of a son would receive. So we could... I could generously extend it to say sons and daughters, but the text says sons to glory, and it means men and women become sons, meaning inheritors. We become children of God. Oh, there is, I I wish I could do justice to how glorious and how beautiful and how important this is. I need, I pray that in the coming year, I'll preach a series of sermons on what this means, the adoption into God's family, our sonship. I, I have this book here called Knowing God. I've mentioned it many times by J.I. Packer. Knowing God is a beautiful book on the practical way of thinking deeply about God and how it relates to our lives. And towards the end of the book, he has a long chapter called Sons of God. It's, it's worth its weight in gold. It's worth the entire book just to read that chapter. And he beautifully points out the glory of our adoption into God. If you have been saved, it is because Jesus Christ came into the world and became flesh, and his object was to make sons for God. Oh, the fatherhood of God is a glorious thing. We pray our Father, the Father of God, brings up many realities. He's our authority but also he has affection for us, that this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And we say, I love the father, I, I honor the father, and he wants to honor us, and we have fellowship with the father. It is a beautiful truth. It is the greatest Christian, the greatest New Testament Christian description of the Christian is we are children of God. 
We are sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. We've been adopted. And being adopted means we have God's love, a fatherly love. And you might say, but isn't that the truth of everybody that's born into the world? And the answer is no. We are not born in God's family. We are born again into God's family. We are born again by the new birth through the gospel being preached. He brings many sons of glory through suffering, the death of the elder brother, Jesus Christ. A whole host of children are adopted into the family of God. Do you realize that if you're saved, it's because God chose you to be adopted? I didn't choose my five biological children. God chose them for me. But I, I have several nieces and nephews who are adopted into my family. Their parents chose them, chose to adopt them. What a beautiful spiritual reality. God chose you. And if you say, well, is that, is that biblical? I chose him. Yeah, you chose him because he first chose you. And if you chose him and believed in him, it's because of his amazing grace breaking through your dead nature where you would have just chosen everything else. And he came and he said, I'm going to love you and I'm going to love you. And he poured out his grace and he gave you the gospel call and he worked through all the circumstances in your life. And there came a moment where you bowed the knee and you trusted in him and said, I choose you. And yet all along, we find the reality behind the scenes is things like Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And what Hebrews 2 is saying, it was fitting that he became human to bring other humans into the sonship of God. And he, he brought us in. Oh, that we would sit and savor the, this year what it means that God is our Father. He loves us like a father. And because of that, we have a Christian hope, and that means an inheritance. And because of that, he has been given us the helper, the Holy Spirit, that will never leave us and forsake us, but go and help and guide us and help us against sin, that the Holy Spirit helps us. And we have Christian assurance. We can be assured that He loves us and that He'll keep us to the end and that when we die, we will be saved. We have that assurance. And because we are sons of glory, He brought, made us into sons of glory, He intends for us to be holy. He intends us to save sons and now says, and by the way, I'm going to make you like dad. You're going to, ha you're going to have family resemblance. You're going, to like, you're going to be like Jesus, and you're going to be like Jesus' father, God the Father. That's number two for why Christmas, to make us like Jesus. First is to make us part of the family. Number two, to make us like Jesus. Oh, if we would, do you, do you know this is our identity? We are his family, and now we are like to be like Jesus. Look at verse 11. So just after he says to make sons of glory, to bring many sons of glory, verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. 
That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, if you have the NIV, I like the NIV's translation. For he who makes people holy and those who are made holy all have one source. That's what it's saying. In the midst of this, Jesus came in order to make us like Jesus, to make us holy, to make us cleansed and a new person. That's what we saw in Romans 8 when we saw in Romans 8, 29, for all those God foreknew, he predestined. Why did, what did he, not just to predestined us to heaven, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God saved people and adopted them, and he said, I am now, I have a, I have a plan and a destiny for you. You are going to be, the image is Jesus. He's the model. That's, that's what the standard is. And I'm in the process of taking all of my children, my sons and daughter that I've adopted as in Christ, and I'm going to bring them into my family. And I'm going to make them now into the likeness of who? Their older brother, Jesus. Have you ever thought of that? Jesus is our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our King. He's our champion. He's our victor. But he's also our big brother. That's how Hebrews 2 talks about it. He be, because he became flesh. It is, God, it is our destiny to be made holy and to be made like Jesus. Oh, that we would go, do you, do you know that's God's plan in your life? Is to make you gloriously like Jesus? That is why sometimes we, many times we go through the suffering and the trials that we saw in Habakkuk and a couple of months ago, a month ago. Why God puts us through trials and why it's not easy in our lives. God loves you too much to leave you alone. And he knows heaven is forever. This world is such a little time and he is making you beautiful spiritually beautiful. The holiness that God intends for us to be is to have our hearts completely consumed with Jesus, consumed with God. This is not some... I grew up in a Christian background that was kind of legalistic. I had great parents, loving parents, but the system was legalist, and the word holiness had this tone of, it's just a bunch of don'ts, and you got to do these things that are kind of boring. That's holiness. That, they didn't say it that way, but that was the attitude that some would have. Holiness is, God intends to bring all the goodness and the beauty and the joy, the majesty that is in God into our lives and our glory as we humbly submit to Him and know Him. It is to know and enjoy all that He has and to hate all that would pervert our enjoying of God and His creation properly. God intends for you and I to be holy. And if, are you growing and being holy? Oh, that is your destiny if you're a Christian. Care about it. Keep your eyes on Jesus because he is committed to making you holy. Good news, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're saved, Jesus is committed to your holiness. God cares about you too much to leave you to your ugly, dirty self, to leave me to my ugly, dirty, selfish, proud self-centered, lusting self, and going to God and being shaped into the likeness of our big brother who went before us. That's why Christmas.
That's why he became a flesh, became flesh to make us like him. The third reason is to help us victoriously deal with death. Do you fear death? Do you fear dying? Some of you might say, no, I don't. But you might more than you think about it. And in fact, most people, the common human condition is to some degree fear death. Listen to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He's saying human beings. They share in flesh and blood. Jesus himself partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus became a man because we were men. And Jesus became a man in order to destroy the devil. And he came to destroy the devil because the devil had the power of death. In fact, we read, O death, where is your sting? In 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ because he died and he rose again. Jesus came to victoriously help us victoriously deal with death. Now, I'm, in these last two points, I'm going to use the word to help us. And I realize it's kind of like not the best word because it's, it's not... When we say help, it means like, I just needed a little shove. God, will you help me? Like, will you help me get care of this death problem or this sin problem, which is going to be point four? And the reality is, he doesn't just help us. He helps us like a little baby comes and says, help me. And in reality, she means pick me up and put me in my crib or get, put me in my high chair to eat because I can't do any of the, I don't contribute at all to getting into the crib. Or into the, into the eating the cri- high chair. Thank you. It's been, um, I don't, and, and God helps us, but he does it all. But here, it is not angels he helps, but it is us, the children. Or he says he is able to help those who are tempted. He is, he is our great helper, and he helps us victoriously deal with death. We're going to have death. We're going to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. But he says, by making you the child of God and bringing many sons to glory, and by making you holy and doing all these things, I'm defanging death so you do not have to worry about death is not the same kind of enemy it used to be because I triumphed over it on the cross and your elder brother cares for you and has brought you into this family, death is not something to fear. You no longer are a slave to that fear because you are a child of God. And so, look to Him. Oh, I don't have time to spend a lot on this right now. I did a funeral this week. Do funerals on a regular basis. I know that you face either your death, and you should. You should think in terms of... I going to die, and I don't know when it's going to be. That's not just a morbid mindset. That is a realistic mindset because there's a 100% mortality rate. All of us are going to face death. No, we need a helper to victoriously deal with our death problem. Jesus came to deal with it. He tasted death for us. Oh, big, our big brother came, the pioneer of our salvation, the forerunner, the founder of our salvation, came at Christmas to deal with death for us. 
which mean, leads to the last thing that I want you to see. And the reality is all four of these things, they interrelate, they all overlap, they build on each other, they, they help each other out because they all are interwoven. Number four, to help us with our sin and our sins. Jesus came to earth. Why Christmas? Why the incarnation of the Word becoming flesh? Is because He came to help us with our sin and our sins. You realize we have a sin problem and we have a sinning problem. In fact, we have a sinning problem. We do sins. We sin against God. We have a bunch of sins. We rebel. We disobey. We break the Ten Commandments. We break God's law. We think wrong thoughts. We do all these things. We trespass God's way and we don't bring Him glory. Those are sins because at the fundamental problem, we have a sin problem, our sin nature. That's how often theologians talk about their sin and sins. I have a sin problem, and because of my sin problem, I do sins. And Jesus came to take care of both of those on the cross to die for our sins. Look at verse 16. For surely it's not angels that he helps. His point is, he was a spirit like an angel. He created the angels. Um, he didn't, angels, angels don't need saving. He came to save the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to become man so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has those who are being tempted, Jesus had to become a man in order for him to be a proper substitute for our sins. Only a human could, could actually pay for the sins of other human beings in God's system and plan of justice. And only a perfect human being could do that because if he was imperfect, he had have to pay for his own sins. But God became man in order to be the sacrifice. Jesus came to die in order to not just be a high priest that would say to God, "Will you? here's a sacrifice, will you accept this and then forgive them and make them your children? He provided the sacrifice with himself, of which we're going to celebrate in just a minute with communion. And here this passage is, Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. And more than that, because he was tempted and suffered, he is able to help us with our sins, help us in our temptations. He is that great high priest that we come to if you are saved, and this is where I want to invite you, if you have never had your sins taken care of, your sin or your sins, it all happens at once. You, you bow the knee and you repent of your sins and your sin and you look to Jesus and you say, I can't take care of them. You must take care of them. What you did on the cross, you were the propitiation. That means you were the satisfaction, but you appeased God with your sacrifice. I want that to be my substitute and be my, in my place. If you trust in Jesus, He will save you. He will accept you. He will accept you by grace as a gift. He gives us salvation. It says here that Jesus did that. Jesus 
was the sacrifice for our sins that all who put him in other places, all who make him their foundation of their salvation, their, their propitiation, their sacrifice, they are saved. I want to wrap it up like this. There's a story of the prodigal son. It's in the book of Luke. You're familiar with it. Remember the story about the prodigal son, the younger brother dishonors now. I want to live for, and he gives him his inheritance. It's a great insult into his culture. He takes it. He takes that inheritance and he goes off and he, spoil, he wastes it with women and song and with food and all that kind of stuff. And he goes off and he, and he squanders all the inheritance until he's dirt poor and he realized how stupid he was to, to do all that. And he's humble and broken and he comes with his tail between his legs, back to his father and says, well, he won't accept me back as a son, but maybe as a servant or a slave, I can, I can work for my dad and pay off my debt. He comes to him, and his father is waiting for him and runs to him and greets him. Now, that's a beautiful story of redemption and forgiveness of God's love and repentance and turning to him, all those things. But there is another character in that story, the elder brother. Remember the elder brother? He, he, didn't, he didn't rebel. He, he stayed at home. He didn't ask for his inheritance. He remained there. He was the older brother, and he stayed with his father. And when he saw that his brother got the fatted calf killed at a big party for him because he had returned that rebel, he wasn't excited. He was angry. He was jealous. He was envious. Father doesn't do this all for me. Well, in ancient culture, it, was the jo- it would have been the job of the elder brother to actually probably go after the younger brother. Either say, you're dead to our family, get out of here, I don't ever want to see you again. Or to run after the old, the, save the honor of the family and to run after the younger brother and say, don't do this, you can't do this, you're dishonoring this family. The, the story of the gospel is that the older brother is the one that paid the debt for the younger brother. In God's plan, it was the old life and paid the debt at the expense of his life in order to bring the younger brother, that be us, and all who put their trust in him, in Christ. Oh, may we look to this elder brother, Jesus. Let us look to our Father and our new identity. Let us, right now, and we're about to take of communion, let us, let us do so remembering that we have been brought part of his family and he's taking care of our sin problem and our sins problem and therefore our death problem because, and he is seeking to make us holy. That's our destiny and our destiny. That is our destiny. That is our identity. I want to end with this. Do you, as a Christian, understand who you are? your real identity. As J.I. Packer says it, our own destiny, you are a child of God if you are saved. God is your father. Heaven is your home. And every day is one day nearer. Your savior is your brother and every Christian in here is your brother too. Say it over and over again to yourself. First thing in the morning and last thing at night. When you get going to school, When you go to work, when you come home, while you're changing the diapers, 
while you're doing the daily chores that you have to do, while you're going on an exercise, remind yourself of who you are. Is this, this is the secret, J.I. Packer says, of, of a happy life? Well, certainly, but of the Christian life, the God-honoring life. May the secret of who we really are and living it out both fully be ours. He suggests that to help us realize more adequately who and what we are as children of God, being brought to as sons of God through Christ, maybe we should ask some questions on a regular basis to examine ourselves. Do you understand your adoption? Do you value it? Do you daily remind yourself of the privilege of being a child of God? And do you live in light of that? Have you sought the full assurance of your adoption? Do you dwell on the love of God to you? Do you? Do you treat God as your Father in heaven, seeking to love and honor and obey Him, seeking and welcoming His fellowship and trying in everything to please Him as a human parent would want his child to do? And do you think of Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and as your brother too, bearing to you not only your, the, the divine authority, but also his divine human sympathy towards you, and he knows your temptations. Do I, do I or you think daily and how close he is to us, how completely he understands us, and how much, as our kinsman redeemer, he cares for us? Have I learned, have we learned to hate the things that displease our Father? And am I insensitive or sensitive to evil things? that he's sensitive to? And do I make a point of avoiding those things lest I grieve him? And do I look for daily forward to that great occasion when all of us children will finally gather before the throne of God and with our father and with the lamb, our brother, and our brothers and sisters to worship? Do I feel the thrill of this hope? And do I love my Christian brothers that are in this room, do I love them more and more each day in a way that I shall not be ashamed in heaven someday when I go back to think about it? Am I proud of my father and of his family to which by his grace I belong? And does his family likeness, is it starting to appear in me more and more? And if not, why not? May God humble us and may God instruct us and may God make us his own true children. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And would you pray for me as, pray with me as we pray, prepare for communion. Father, I pray that you would help us as we take of this family meal. Help us to rejoice. Help us to be thankful. Help us to obey you. Help us to repent of our sins and look to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. This is my flesh. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant of, in my blood. This is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. I want to I take this meal and relate it to my sermon on God, God the Father, through Jesus, sending His Son to partook of flesh and blood. Boy, how are we going to remember that? 
One way is to actually take bread and take juice today and go, he partook of flesh and blood in order to taste death for me in order to take on my sin and be the propitiation of my sins. And oh, today, this week, when I struggle with temptation of sin, he will help me because he suffered when being tempted. He's able to help me. And, and why all this? Because I'm his family. And how do I know he's family? Well, he's, he's given me so many proofs of it and reminders. This is like a family reminder meal from God to say, I'm yours. And remember what I did for you on the, by sending my son to become a man, to be flesh and blood? Here, illustration. Remember it. Remember, I will not leave you or forsake you. I love you. I'm going to make you holy. And he did it for all of us, brothers and sisters. And so if you are a child of God, if you've repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ, I invite you to take it. There's one mark in which he tells us that we are to obey him, and that is to be baptized as a believer. And so if you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. Would you please talk with us about that? But we invite you to take of this meal if you have trusted and have been baptized. And so what we will do is we're going to, most of you have done this. I'm looking around. I think all of you have been here and done the communion this way. We're going to, in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to go down the side aisles. You're going to come through. You're going to take a piece of bread. You're going to take a juice and go back to your chair and wait. Take this time to, to greet one another. You can nod or say hi to one another because you're going to interact as you go through. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ and thank God for them. And think about what God has done for you. Take time to think of the four points of why he came. He, he came to make me his family. He's my father. He'd take my sin and my death problem to make me like him. Thank him for that. Confess your sins. Ask him to help you be holy like he is.